CB On Air, cutting-edge conversations with those in the central banking community. Hello and welcome to this CB On Air podcast. I'm Dan Hinge. As the shock of COVID-19 recedes, many central banks are starting to dial back their monetary easing, or at least signalling that tighter policy is on the way. But questions remain over how central banks can exit from crisis-era policies, and how exactly they will use their balance sheets as policy tools over the longer term. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Paul Fisher, Fellow of the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership and a Senior Advisor at Oliver Wyman. Paul spent 26 years at the Bank of England, where he served as an Executive Director, sat on the Monetary Policy Committee, and later became Deputy Head of the Prudential Regulation Authority. While Executive Director, he spent five years overseeing the quantitative easing programme. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Dan. Very nice to be with you. So to start off, I I think it's fair to say that balance sheet policy and fiscal policy are kind of interlinked. Um, So how would you say central banks' relationships to their governments have changed since the start of the pandemic? Well, of course, it's a very interesting question. And the first thing I should note is that in every jurisdiction, the relationship between the central bank and its government is going to be slightly different. Uh, And at one extreme, you have the ECB, which has been set up by international treaty. And in fact, you could argue that isn't really an EU government for it to report to or have a relationship with. And then in other countries, the central bank forms a very wide range of functions and can work hand in glove with government. But every central bank tries to keep independence in respect of its monetary policy functions. And I don't think that has changed as a result of the crisis. But then it's interesting to compare the pandemic with the global financial crisis from a dozen years ago. In the global financial crisis, central banks are very much the lead respondent trying to restore financial stability as well as monetary stability. In the pandemic, the central banks have really been a supporting actor where the mainstream uh, response has come from governments and fiscal policy and health uh, and so on. Um, But I think the one thing which is clear is that because central banks, at least in developed countries, have done more quantitative easing, the financial relationship between the central bank and the government seems to be getting ever more entwined. And central banks um, in many countries now are very major holders of government debt. That wasn't something we originally envisaged when QE started back in 2008-9. Right, and I think that's that's going to be an important um, detail, um, which sort of brings me to the next question. So although some central banks are are reducing their QE and maybe moving towards the exit, I, I think it's fair to say it may be difficult for them to kind of return fully to the days before COVID or, or even before the global financial crisis. So would you say big balance sheets are here to stay? And what sorts of challenges do you think that will throw up for central banks? I, I think they are. I don't think that's because of the short run technical difficulties in uh, unwinding QE. Most of those can be overcome. Different countries have made different announcements about QE. Um, The UK is relatively well positioned because it tends to announce a block of QE at a time and then automatically stops unless something else happens and automatically reinvests unless something else happens. So you don't get quite the same taper tantrums as you might with other countries doing open-ended 
QE, where actually just slowing down rate of purchases can be quite a market event. Um, but that, that is short run tactics. The real issue we've seen is that central banks have dramatically increased the supply of the narrow money base through doing QE. That was the intention. You, you flood the system with liquidity. And what's happened in the background is that the demand for the narrow money base has also risen very significantly. And central banks now will not be able to return to the same levels of balance sheet that they had before the financial crisis, say. Um, the Bank of England's balance sheet has increased 12-fold, DCB's, uh, European system central banks about five-fold. And most of that will have to be retained. And the reason why the demand has gone up has been a combination of regulation and market change. Uh, regulation means that commercial banks now have to hold many more liquid assets on their balance sheets than they did before. And the most liquid asset they can hold is their deposit at the central bank. And so as those deposits have been expanded by QE, actually the commercial banks have needed that in order to meet their liquidity requirements. And also now the way that markets are behaving, commercial banks are much less likely to lend to or borrow from each other in the interbank market. And so they're quite happy to sit there with their deposits at the, the central bank. And so this has massively increased the demand for money, which means that most of the QE perhaps has been offset by the demand, increased demand for money. And we saw this in the United States in 2018-19, when the Fed became the first of the major central banks to try to reduce its balance sheet. And it didn't get that far before in 2019, it ran into volatility in short-term interest rates. And that's exact, exactly what you'd expect when the supply of money starts to reduce relative to the demand and banks start and other players start to look around for sources of short-term liquidity if they haven't got enough at the central bank. And so we don't know what the optimal size of central bank balance sheets is, but it's likely to be very considerably higher than it was before the financial crisis. And I don't know, I, a broad order of magnitude, I would expect 70 to 80% of uh, the, the central bank's balance sheets to stay where they are. Very interesting. And so those higher reserves balances, presumably the central bank will have to start paying interest on those if the interest rate rises. Do you see that as a potential source of kind of tension between central bank and government? Uh, it's not a, a, a source of contention for the central bank with the banks in the sense that the, the central bank has two sides of the balance sheet. And in all the, these big countries, they're earning as much on the asset side as they would be paying on the, um, the liabilities side. So they're not making a loss. Um, but there is a potentially risk from government. What, what essentially central banks have been doing by buying government bonds is allowing the government to fund itself at the short-term interest rate rather than the long-term interest rate on the bonds. And so as that dynamic shifts, essentially uh, um, government finance becomes a bit more expensive. But that's, that's the whole point, of course, you tighten policy in order to uh, reduce the supply of lending and tighten the economy, the interest rate has to go up. Um, and so I don't, I don't think that will prove a source of contention, but it could be a source of pain because governments have had a relatively easy ride. Fiscal, the costs of a fiscal deficit now are actually very low, even for much expanded fiscal deficits. It may not stay that way if short-term interest rates um, go up. And of course, a lot of governments have increased their debt substantially since, uh, since QE began. So 
That'd be an interesting dynamic there, I guess. Yeah. Um, so a, an interesting kind of related question is the composition of the balance sheet. Um, I think central banks that are doing QE are maybe giving a bit more thought to that now. Um, so kind of what's what's the importance of, a, of the composition of the balance sheet? And, and do you think that that in itself could be more of a tool for central banks in the future? Yeah, I think this is the really interesting question right now, given that if you accept that central bank balance sheets are going to remain expanded for monetary policy purposes, um, we haven't had much academic debate about what the composition of that balance sheet should be. From a monetary perspective, all that matters is the scale of it, because that generates the quantity of cash on the other side of the balance sheet, the commercial bank reserves and the bank notes, which you, you require. And perhaps the maturity of the assets man, uh, matters because you're also trying to control the yield curve in some way, not just the short-term interest rate. But beyond that, there's nothing from a monetary angle that would say you have to hold one set of assets rather than another, say housing assets versus corporate bonds versus government debt. You could say you want to be market neutral, and the easiest way to do that is to buy the risk-free asset, which is government bonds. But you don't have to. There's no requirement for that. And if you had another policy purpose, then you could hold something else. So one thing we wrote about a few years ago was the possibility that central banks could intervene in markets, buying and selling less liquid assets um, in order to adjust financial stability conditions. That will be within most central banks remit. And obviously, if you take illiquid assets out of the market and you put cash in, um, that would have a different effect from taking liquid assets out of the market and putting cash in. And so you do actually have a macro prudential or financial stability type instrument at your disposal if you want. I think there's also going to be pressure from people who see central bank um, assets as free money to invest in something. Uh, and so over the past, in the UK, we've seen people calling for people's QE or green QE. Uh, now, some of that is misguided, but I think it will raise the debate about what central banks should and shouldn't hold what their balance sheet. And of course, central banks themselves have intervened in particular markets for particular reasons and changed the composition themselves. So at the start or after the financial crisis, the ECB bottled corporate bonds. In the US, they bought a lot of housing market related bonds, in both cases to try to assess funding conditions, reassess funding conditions in those particular markets. So central banks have already acknowledged they do have the power to affect particular market conditions through the choice of assets. And so that is another possible policy reason for changing the composition. I find that that kind of interplay quite interesting um, in the sense that I guess QE started out as a monetary policy tool, but it's definitely got this financial stability dimension to it now. Do you think there's been enough thought, I suppose, devoted to sort of how to delineate those, those lines? And for instance, what might happen if you, you had a, a monetary policy that's going in the opposite direction to financial stability policy? Well, fundamentally, central banks have three different policy concerns, monetary policy, financial stability and supervision and surveillance, where the central bank is also responsible for that. And these three things all overlap and interlink. Generally speaking, there is less conflict than you would imagine, because usually these policies go in the same direction, not in different directions. And also you can 
coordinate to a certain extent. So if a change in financial regulations makes the economy a bit tighter, you can ease monetary policy a bit um, to compensate. That is not a conflict because you're still pursuing your inflationary objectives. You're just, the conditions have changed. So you set a slightly different monetary policy and that's how you, you react to, to any shock. The big problem really comes with the fact that we don't have very many financial stability instruments um, and the governance of them can be quite variable across countries. It's clear, it's clear who sets monetary policy and what you do. It's fairly clear who does prudential supervision and what powers they have. It is not clear, uh, actually anywhere, probably not clear in most countries, what financial stability instruments you have separately from those other ones and who controls it. Now in the UK, we're lucky to have a relatively clear mechanism that it's the Financial Policy Committee at the Bank of England which does it. And it has a set of um, things it can do. Most countries have the counter-cyclical buffer. And the big conflict, if there is one, would be over financial stability instruments, macroprudential and microprudential um, policies where the two might overlap. So for example, coordinated stress tests are usually seen as a macroprudential uh, tool, but they're also microprudential tool for individual banks. And so you need quite a lot of coordination between financial stability and prudential supervision to, to make sure there's not any conflicts there. And the Bank of England has a kind of institutional setup where um, officials sit on, on both committees so that you have that kind of crossover, I guess. Yeah. Maybe and you have differential government involvement, which is quite interesting. So on the Financial Stability Committee, the government is represented as a member of the committee, although typically they don't take part in any votes. On the Monetary Policy Committee, they're an observer, and occasionally they speak, um, but they're basically an observer. Whereas on prudential supervision, the government mustn't be in the room because they mustn't interfere in individual uh, bank decisions. And so you have that varying relationship with government across the things. In most countries, they have been reluctant to give the central bank outright power over financial stability conditions to the extent that they have in the UK. Right, okay, yeah, interesting. Um, I wanted to come back to the point you made about uh, climate change there and, and how that could potentially be a tension. I, I guess it, in a way, if you if you think about QE as, as people's QE or green QE, that's it's maybe bringing the, the central bank a bit closer to what we would typically think of as fiscal policy. Um, do you think that is a risk and, and are, are central banks striking a good balance at the moment? I, I think they generally are, and they're moving towards being more active in this space. And the reason I think fundamentally is that climate change affects every primary objective that central bank has. It can impact on the volatility of inflation, and therefore they have to take that into account. It can, can affect the safety and soundness of firms, and it can create financial stability events. And so central banks don't ultimately have any choice but to be involved. The key question is, what can they do? They aren't the lead authorities in tackling climate change. That's absolutely clear. It must be government that's the lead authority. But central banks can do things in different ways. And as they do things in different ways, they can take some other policy uh, considerations into account. And so there are various things they could do, particularly with their balance sheets, in order to promote climate change policy. And certainly in the UK and the EU, there are secondary objectives which suggest they should be doing that anyway. The real question for them is, is exactly what? Now, it's fairly clear in prudential supervision 
you should be ensuring that banks and other authorised institutions properly manage the risks from climate change. But that seems a slam dunk, if you like. It's less clear what the balance sheet interventions should be. And the reason is at the moment is we have a huge demand for green assets from the private sector and we don't have enough supply. And we don't have enough market standards to generate that supply. And so, so that suggests that if central banks do anything, what they should be focused on is encouraging more supply of assets somehow, perhaps by promoting market standards. What they shouldn't be doing is large scale purchases of green assets at a time when that could take away uh, the growth in nascent markets. You might get private sectors investors give up because they can't get hold of the, the assets they, they need to. Um, there may also be room for central banks to help finance marginal green assets, things which can't get financed in the private sector, but which nevertheless have got enough financially to enable um, public sector going. And then the question is, why are they doing that rather than the government? And so I think any action on that front would need agreement with government and a dialogue about what you're doing and why. But it may well be that a central bank could, for example, place a deposit with a green investment bank to help fund it in a way which is harder for the government to finance with sovereign bonds. And so there may be things here a central bank could do a bit easier, which would not conflict with monetary policy um, and would help it meet its broader objectives. But I think that that would be it would be very rational for central bank to do that without any dialogue with their government, which is, must be the lead authority on the topic. So that kind of brings me neatly to the, the final question, um, if I may, which is, is there a kind of ideal form of independence or uh, an ideal relationship to government? Um, does that kind of have to fit local conditions? I think it's a little bit of a red herring, the independence debate, if I, if I may. People focus on it too much. Central banks do need to be independent in the setting of monetary policy. Okay, because we don't want politicians playing short-term political games with interest rates. That, that's clear. And you could say the Bank of England has that independence instead of monetary policy. But you have a nine-man monetary policy committee, eight of whom are appointed by the government. Yeah, so how independent is, is that really? Well, it depends on what, how the government plays it. There has never been, to my knowledge, a political appointment to the Monetary Policy Committee in the UK. And that has been what's preserved the independence of the Monetary Policy Committee. And I think the markets would take umbrage if they saw the government playing that sort of political game. Um, uh, in Europe, it, it, it is, the ECB is often the focus, but it's a very different beast. It's set up by an international treaty. It doesn't really have a government to report to. It, it, it's a much more complicated uh, system. And the way that European um, civil law works, it's also harder for the ECB to take unto itself um, sensible um, changes without putting them within the treaty context. Um, so the ECB, it's not the ECB's fault, and they do very well given the constraints they've got, but that's not a very flexible system. And I think most central banks do prize flexibility. Um, but the important thing is complete independence in monetary policy. Also, you need independence in conducting prudential supervision. In fact, you, the government mustn't be anywhere near prudential supervision. But you need quite a lot of collaboration on financial stability and on other things that the central bank does. It, they print banknotes, they maintain payment systems, they, they have a raft of less obvious responsibilities, which governments would inevitably be interested in. And so I think it's, um, 
it's much more complex than simply saying the central bank is independent or it's not. Right, and it, it maybe helps to have that kind of structured um, governance framework where the government is allowed in where, where it makes sense for them to be allowed in and, and not where they're not. Exactly. And I think each country then has to sort this out according to the local history and the local rules which they're familiar with working on. Very interesting. Okay, uh, that's about all we've got time for. Thanks so much for your time today, Paul, and um, I hope people can tune into the next episode of uh, CP On Air. Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much for everybody for listening. Mm -hmm.